A reading from Mark 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Thank you for that reading, Emily. The kids are invited to Kids Church. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and a servant of all. He took a little child and placed them among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes, does not welcome me, but welcomes the one who sent me. That's what the scripture said for us this morning. So I brought a stool thinking that I could talk one of my kids into sitting on it during one of the portions where we talked about kids, they both rebuked me. Um, uh, So in theory, I've got salt for the other, uh, I don't often have tangible illustrations, but I was like, I got two shots today, the salt was easy, the kid one was not. There's a, uh, it's funny because I try not to use my kids as, as stories or as props in my sermons. There's a, and there's lots of reasons for that, but one of the ones that, um, uh, one of my favorite theologians said a long time ago was that if you, if your pastor says, you know something I learned from my kids this week, it's insights on the human condition that you could easily get from the Lions Club or from Oprah or from someone else. Um, and so it might be time to, to reassess uh, how he's teaching you, which I always took to heart. So there's, there's a new movement saying respect your kids. It's like, ah, they're my kids. Um, but... But the idea that if you're using that, it becomes sort of this immaturity spot from the get-go. It becomes this sort of base instruction. Rather than the revelation of instruction that we have from God and Jesus Christ, it becomes something different. Um, so there's two things there. Um, the second, the, the sermon starts today with announcements, which is everybody's favorite things. This year we have a Good Friday service coming. And Good Friday is this way in which we walk to that darkest spot so that the light of Easter can shine all the brighter. In the past, we've done what the the lectionary does, which is they have um, Palm Sunday and um, Passion Sunday as this one Sunday to which is the Sunday before Easter. 
And so what you do is you read the Palm Sunday account, and then at the end of the service or in the midst of the service, you read the Passion account because what the lectionary people had realized is that people don't come to church on Good Friday anymore. But they had figured out that it was so important to know that story and narrative. So the first year we did Mark, we do one gospel every year from the new year until Easter. So this is our second time through Mark in my time here. Um, The first time we did Mark, I made the first Sunday of Lent Palm Sunday, which if this were like a clergy gathering, everybody go, (gasps) (laughs) lacks the surprise with you guys. Um, But the reason I did that was because Palm Sunday is Mark 11. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Five chapters Mark spends in the Holy Week. Five out of his 16. And they're longer chapters. It's almost a third of the gospel Mark spends in Holy Week in Jerusalem. And it's at this moment in Holy Week in Jerusalem that that the, the narratives of the gospels coalesce in a way that they're all so similar. It's almost, this is the moment where the identity and the disclosure of this one is most revealed. And so it comes into alignment the most at that moment. That's why the similarities are so strong. And so for us as a church, there's this moment in which we uh, are going to take that time this year rather than cram it into Palm Passion Sunday. It'll still be there that Sunday, um, but not as pronounced and, and Emily, uh, was, Emily has pushed me on this, of having that Good Friday service so that we can sit in that darkness so the light of Easter shines all the brighter. So that's my pitch to come to Good Friday. Put it in your calendar today. Make it a priority because that's the place where we go so that we can see what it looks like when death is defeated and Christ raises from the tomb. Um, it's the darkest we can go. The second announcement is that this, this section of Mark that we just read, um, from the second passion, uh, uh, the second time he predicts his death, starting in verse 33 all the way to verse 50, is, is short, and it's, it's sort of structured like, I'm going to put this up, and it's not going to make sense right away. Um, it's sort of structured like this, and it's, 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 maze, it's, it's structured in a way that you would be able to memorize it. It's catechetical instruction. It's the way in which you would um, instruct new believers in the faith. It's got a structure that sort of moves so that, that it's memorizable. It's memorizable? Easily me- memorable? Anyways, uh, I should have looked that up and memorized it before I got up here. Um, uh, it's structured in a way, and it's, its internal consistency isn't as tight as you would think, but it has what they, in... Um, Biblical studies call catchword phrases that help you move throughout it. And so 34 at the top left here has uh, with each other, um, and it ends with the saltiness with each other, be salty with each other. And it moves in this sort of greatest last child in your name, casting out offends. It would be, uh, it is better, good, cut it off. Uh, and in our English translations, it may not be as apparent, uh, eternal life, dominion of God, fire, um, and so you can kind of see how it, it's like a ladder, and so that like if you start with the first words, you memorize the catch word phrases to fill in the story, right? So if you got the words right, then you would fill the content around the words. Um, it's also, and if you're thinking, this does not seem any more easy, uh, easy to memorize, um, research on ancient people is they were much, much better at memorization than we were. So um, 
their minds were able to, to sort of go through these processes and, and memorize in a much, it's what they had, right? First, they didn't have Google to look things up on, but second, they didn't have books either. So the nature of making things in memorizable passages and ways was essential to sort of getting your story out there. This one, it looks like, is an instruction for new disciples in the way that Mark has sort of coalesced it in his narrative of, of saying um, it's an instruction for, for following Jesus in this way, and that seems to be the theme that holds it together. A collection of saying on Christians living is the way one scholar put it. And so that's sort of the way it's structured. The reason why I bring that up and, um, is, is to put Derek on the spot, but he'll be on the spot even more in Easter season as he's preparing for baptism himself. Um, and so keep in mind, pray for Derek. Uh, pray for him as he walks this road. Pray for him as he thinks that, as he comes closer to baptism. But also, uh, if I want you at Good Friday, I want you at our baptism service even more. That's a full church day where we gather together. He wants to do it in the river, so it will, I'm not sure if we'll do a part service here, part service there, full service there, or whatever. But that'll be in the Easter season, which is classically what the church does too, is that you prepare for baptism during Lent, and then you're baptized um, on Easter Sunday or in the Easter season, this sort of way. And so that's sort of the second thing we're preparing to, for. But Derek has the pleasure of this being pointed at him today, this, this sermon and instructions on Christian living, because we all have it down, right? Yeah, we don't. Um, uh, and so that's a little bit of a setup for both what's coming in Good Friday um, and Mark's narrative. And I'm, I'm going to try and get a resource together for Holy Week for you to practice some of that at home, to know what is... Mark, what is from Palm Sunday to his death, to his resurrection? Because Mark's story, I think, is so beautiful in the way in which that um, he preserves for us the Holy Week events. It's, it's worth sitting with that week if you have five minutes or a little bit of time to be able to do so. Um, so that brings us to today's sermon, this, this sort of structured document in which it sort of walks through what it might mean to be a disciple, what it might mean to follow this one, what it might be to, to be attached to this one. Um, what happens is, is and this is Jesus, um, this one of my kids wouldn't do it, I came prepared. Um, Jesus blessing a child or instructing his disciples with the children. After each of the passion predictions, Mark has three before he reaches Jerusalem. Jesus' disciples are confused. After the first one, it's Peter who pulls him aside and says, hey, you've got this wrong. We are right. You are the Christ, but the Christ is not one who's to suffer and die. Jesus rebukes him um, in firm words because it's not for, for Peter to pull him off that path. Um, in this one, John is the one who sort of gets the blame, but it's the full group. What happens is he predicts how he will die, his suffering. And it's, in this one, he, he adds the phrase, which we didn't read today, we read it last week, is he's handed over. There's a, there's a bit in a, a loss in power if you're somebody who's passed around, if you're handed over. But Jesus will be handed over for his crucifixion. The disciples, um, Jesus asked them, um, they come to Capernaum where his ministry started. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? They get it that you don't want to answer this question, um, but they kept quiet because on the way they argued, who was the greatest? Who was the greatest? Now this is this... this um, 
how Jesus answers this question overturns so much. At the end of, end of the sermon, I'm going to tell a story from Henry Nouwen, um, who coined this phrase uh, in a different document than the one I'm going to share from at the end of the sermon, uh, downward mobility. It was an article in the 1980s when the world was using upward mobility, upward mobility. And, and Nouwen said, the call of the believer is downward mobility. And so we cut him off and never let him publish again. <laughs> um, uh, but he thought that how do we find ourselves caught in downward mobility? I'll tell you a little bit more about him later, but, but when they're arguing who's the greatest, they're in a competition of upward mobility. And we still see this in today's world. There's another place we see it in today's world, and this is, is anybody familiar with the phrase intersectionality? Yeah, Jonathan is. Jonathan actually would probably explain it better than I am. But what happened in, I think, the 50s, 60s, the feminist movement was getting started, and they were, women were like, particularly white women were like, I want to go to college. I want to study. I want to be included in society. We should be able to be doctors, CEOs, mathematicians, all this other stuff. And that was a positive movement in the world. After that, um, African-American women, black women suggested, yeah, we have separate bathrooms and drinking fountains. And so what we need is not a feminism that's arguing for college at this moment. What we need is a feminism that's expressed in, in sort of, and this is where the phrase womanist also comes from, right? And these, these are, I think, positive developments in, in which we're articulating what the needs of people are and then trying to respond to them. The problem is, as, as intersectionality became more powerful and in the world, in the academy, it becomes um, a downwardly mobile Olympics, per se. And so that the person who can claim the most malign status in the room then be, is, is able to speak the most profoundly. I firmly believe that what has happened in the Christian world sometimes, or in the modern world, is we've taken the goods of Christianity, separated them from their source and root, and then influx them into a pressure that perhaps they weren't meant for. So the care for the marginalized is deep and true, no matter how many marginalizations or struggles you want to put on top of that. And the care for the individual is also deep and true. But the idea that, that now the call is to grant power, and it becomes a power game of who's the greatest through our claims about oppression, begins to put a distortion on what does it mean to have charity? What does it mean to help? And what does it mean to care for? And so while we're all familiar with the CEO upwardly mobile competition, um, we see it particularly in denominational politics for me. I think you can see it in campus politics and other places. This downwardly mobile, but it's still an argument of who's the greatest. And so what Jesus does to set that both our Upwardly mobile, one, to a, a challenge, but also this, this other one to a challenge, is, is he takes a child and places them in the midst. And the child represents uh, two things, but it represents first one who is without uh, power or status in the ancient world. Perhaps you've been in churches, and I've probably maybe done this in, in the past a long time ago, that they overplay that children were like dogs or this, that, and the other. There's, there's some truth to that in the ancient world that children were like property to their parents and, and didn't have rights and all this and stuff like that. But more, it's just structurally true. 
Lots of people cherished their children and treated them well. Um, and children weren't always seen as, as, weren't predominantly seen in society in a negative light. That's the way we overplay this. But they were those who didn't have rights or didn't have ways to assert themselves. They were ones that were sort of not yet fully members of their community. And you see this even in, in late, um, there's a scene in uh, the Brothers Karamazov, so that's the late 1800s, early 1900s, where parents sort of have the right to abuse their child because it's their child. We had that until, I mean, it's, we've had that much longer than we think. Um, and so Jesus, in taking this one who has no rights in this way, but what, one of the things that he expresses in the children is that they don't intuit this game the same way we do. There's an influx here. It's not the same that the way adults play these games. He sort of puts the child, and we'll get into this more in the second child teaching in, in this road towards Jerusalem together. Um, but Jesus places them in the midst, and he says, whoever wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. The second thing was that Jesus, as we most likely think, spoke Aramaic, and in Aramaic, child and servant are the same word. Um, to be the servant of all. Jesus will later fill this out, that the Son of Man came to serve and to give himself up as a ransom for many. It's not about claiming more. It's about living in this sort of reciprocal relationship that's beyond that. This, as I was thinking about it, brought me to, it's, this is the quote on the back of Bolton Day, but this wonderful quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Everyone passionately seeks to be well-adjusted, but there are some things in our world to which men of goodwill must be maladjusted. Human salvation lies in the hands of the creatively maladjusted. King, uh, when he writes this, I believe it's in Paul's letter to the Americans. He gives a, a sermon speech where they've rediscovered Paul's long-lost letter to the Americans, and he gives it in the voice of Paul. And he says to them, you know, I've heard this phrase, speaking as Paul, that you want to have your kids be well-adjusted. You want to be well-adjusted to the world. There's a goal in being well-adjusted. But King, using the voice of Paul, says, but perhaps human salvation resides in those who are creatively maladjusted to a world about power politics, that once more, that seeks division uh, along all sorts of lines. King, at the end of his life, was concerned socioeconomically as much as he was about race um, that, that divides in this way, that, that how do we find ways to be creatively maladjusted in the world? Perhaps easier to stomach than downward mobility. Um, sign me up for this one. But, but this, this is that way in which we can... As Christians, and going to the end of today's passage about salt and saltiness, to have that flavor in ourselves is to be those who don't see business as usual. To be those who have a different way of being and expressing in the world. That we don't play the same power games. It might be we reside more in solidarity. It might be other things, but there is... Any number of ways, if you stop and think and pray, in which you can enter many situations creatively maladjusted. Because so often we know the script of where things are going. Um, and that's, that's a challenge for us to, to retain this saltiness in our lives. Um, so Jesus, as he places the child amongst them, takes 
for them to be the servant. And whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's a loaded phrase that he offers here at the end of this passage with the child, or the child comes up again, and the causing to stumble. But he's saying is that, um, first, I think that that Jesus holds the little child, embraces him, I think is uh, powerful to think about. Um, Jesus holding and embracing this one. The reason why I think that becomes more powerful, too, is little children, least of these little ones, most biblical scholars think is actually referenced to Christians. We are to be in the world as the least of these, the little one, the children. Uh, when he gets to the next passage, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, he's talking about Christians. So there's this reference in which Christ at this scene, as we don't get it, we were arguing on the road who is the greatest, is one who embraces us in that moment anyways, who holds us in that space. And in his embrace, he says that, that our job is to welcome them in his name, welcomes him. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Is this reference to, in the ancient world, the emissary was the master himself. The one who carried the message had the same power as that. This is Jesus um, alluding to that he is God in Mark's gospel. It's not, if, if, as we've been going through it, he doesn't state that outright. He's never um, expressing that himself. But welcoming him and welcoming those attached to him is welcoming God. Um, and we see this in the uh, ways in which we are, are called to invite people into this space in our world to be that way. Um, uh, and it should bring to us important challenges about welcome in our lives and welcome in this world, um, to be able to welcome in that way. The next teaching... Um, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Uh, out of context, that reads bad, doesn't it? Uh, in context, it doesn't read much better, but just the way I threw it up there made John seem way worse than he is. Um, what John is saying is, uh, is that they're seeing people, exorcism was very uh, popular in the ancient Near East. Lots of mental sickness and some physical sickness was uh, considered to be demons, both Jewish and not, and so often exorcists would be called in to help people who were dealing with that. What happens, John is saying, there's one who's not a disciple, one of us, and he is expelling demons in your name. Um, there's a different shade on this going back, like, I don't know, 10 verses when the disciples couldn't cast out a demon themselves. So John is dealing with some short-sightedness here, perhaps, um, but there's, the pronouns in this passage are interesting because what he says is he was not one of us. He's missing the your name connection. He's driving out demons in your name. And his notion for what us is is somehow separated from the name of Jesus. Now this is, I think, a challenge for modern believers because we look at so many Christians askew. Um, uh, the media doesn't make that particularly any easier for us, but, but we look at so many Christians as if, are they with us? And the question is, whose name is it? 
And that name can be abused. I wouldn't deny that reality. But the fact of the matter is we think us so often. Jesus' answer, which is more generous than, it's, it's a hard generosity, is do not stop him. For one who does any miracle in my name in the next moment, uh, in the next moment say anything bad about me. Um, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who brings the second teaching, we'll just stop with that first one for a moment, is, is what Jesus is saying is that, uh, have you discerned the time? Exorcism, as we've been talking about, is this moment of spiritual battle, of God reclaiming territory in a world that's gone askew and astray, that, that people are distorted and, and falling apart, and Satan is the one often attributed to this, or one of his demons, if you've discerned this time, how is one joining us in that battle to bring back what was taken from its rightful place? A struggle. For as if he is not against us, if this person, if our fellow believers, if those who exercise in Jesus' name are not against us, if they are um, in intention, trying to bring back what has been torn away from God. And they're not against us, they're for us. And, and that's where Jesus brings it back to the us. So he acknowledged there's an us, but the us isn't the community of disciples. The us is the community gathered around the name. Just a it, it, you could see this as an, a challenge for Mark's community, too, as the Jesus movement is taking root in the world. And there are many us's. Um, and so we're in this community, in this town, and we hear about what's going on in, in um, Athens or uh, uh, Ephesia, uh, Ephesus or Galatia. Like, what is, what is, how are we supposed to think about the different forts or forms the Jesus movement is taking um, if they're not against us? They're for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives a cup of water in my name, uh, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. There's, that one seems to be both a reference to we should give cups of water in his name, but both as the little ones, the, the world, because in the New Testament imagination, the world is not going to be definitively Christianized. And so the idea in some of these passages is how the world treats you, receives you, takes you in, is how they gain their salvation, even though they don't come to know the name. Um, now, we could talk about whether that's eternal salvation or this, that, and the other. They don't have time for that. Um, but, uh, but there's this idea in which the way in which we are received by those who don't know Jesus says something to their character on how they represent or know this one. And this is particularly important for missionaries uh, in Mark's time, that they would go out and be received or not received. And those who give water have some inheritance in that because of what they're doing. Um, the next teaching in this passage, uh, if anyone causes these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Um, in Mark's time, this was a punishment that had been practiced, so this is not just hyperbole. They kind of know this one. 
Um, if your hand stumbles, you, it causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better to enter eternal life maimed than with two hands to go to hell, where the fires never grow out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. This is an instruction for the disciples around our hands, uh, our eyes, and our feet, and how we live in the world. These, these members of our body that we can either use for good or for harm, for healing or destruction, and how we use those members is, is um, part of our salvation. It is better to cut them off. Now, one of the things that stuck out to me this week was the theologian William Placker said about this passage that If cutting off your hand, removing your foot, taking out your eye could solve the problem of sin, it's worth it. And he says, if you don't think that, then you've misunderstood the problem of sin. All the conflict, all the pain, all the destruction we see in the world goes by the name sin. To go one-handed would be worth it. But what Jesus has already told us is that these things come from the inside, not from the outside. His instruction here is how do we pull ourselves away from those things which lead to our destruction, which are going to pull us further and further into darkness, into the pit. And this is one, in this age of... um, Technology in which our eyes, let's just focus on the eyes maybe rather than the hands or the feet at the moment, are so trained towards the visual, it's so hard to equip ourselves to actually take it back. The number of young men I've talked to that came of age during the time of of, um, internet pornography becoming wide in the world, or even just visual culture in that way, um, the way they've rescued themselves away from it is good, yet they still... we. We, when we talk, we laugh about the fact that you can still go to the internet and get all those hits the same way you do dopamine hits or whatever you want to call them on ESPN the same way you did the other way. Like we have this visual way in which it is so, it would be better to remove our eyes sometimes because curing that part of the soul, and this is consumerism at large, let's say. You don't have to just think in the the, the other ways. To cure that is, is one of these things that we battle hard in the world, I think, as all believers. We do it with our hands and our feet. We, we think we might be better at, perhaps, but the ways in which our, our violence becomes digitized or, um, or our, our lust become more amorphous in sort of this visual realm um, suggests a deep challenge for us. And what Jesus is trying to say is it's better to lose some of those things, to maybe make your phone a dumb phone, to cast out those things, to throw them away so that you may enter eternal life, the life that is eternal. It's challenging teaching, and I don't think it's an easy one, but I think presented in this dark of contrast gets to the heart of it. You have eternal life. You have these fires and worms that he talks about. And understanding that battle in that context and taking it seriously, which I think often we fail to do, 
might actually give us the impetus to, to make the sacrifices necessary to seek our healing around our hands, our feet, and our eyes. He ends with a teaching on salt. Everyone will be salted with fire, which fire is this purifying agent in the last passage. It's salted as the purifying with fire in this passage. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Going back to the beginning, they were talking among themselves, who is the greatest? Have salt amongst yourself and be at peace with one another. Have this creatively maladjusted flavor to the world and be at peace with each other. The, I said I'd, I'd say something about Henry Nouwen at the end, and so here we are. This is, this is Henry Nouwen with um, Adam. Henry Nouwen, who, who did come up with the phrase downward mobility, as we talked about, taught at Harvard Divinity School and on the regular campus. And he slowly weaned his wife away from uh, Ivy League education and moving up the pyramid of the world to volunteering and moving into a community called La Arche, um, which was founded in, with people living among the severely mentally disabled. Um, and he moved in there. I think Philip Yancey visited him towards the end of his life, and he had one small room um, with like five books, and that's where he had moved to towards the end of his life. Now in... Uh, was a Catholic priest, and, and the way in which he followed the path of downward mobility. But what Arch does is finds not just solidarity with, with um, the severely handicapped, um, but friendship and relation. Um, in their communities, the members are those who are there who are dealing with severe handicap. They're the members. The other people are, are sort of on the outside. So now and as he, as he moves into that community and takes full-time care for Adam while he's there, um, is, is, is not the member. He's, he's one in service to these. Uh, the reason why this, this came to me, I think, with this passage is that little one and welcome in children and this full sort of picture of what that means. Um, but Nowen wrote this little book, um, In the Name of Jesus, which is about spiritual leadership. Um, and it was lectures he gave in Washington, D.C. As Nowen sort of traced this path, he um, began to take members of the L'Arche community with him to these events. Um, and it was as challenging as you could imagine to bring them to these events. Um, but what Nowen says, and it's always stuck with me at the beginning of this book, but before the lectures, he says, um, he brings Bill on this trip, um, and Bill is, is one who's severely disabled, and Bill is always saying, we're doing this together, aren't we, Henry? We're doing this together. And he says, yes, Bill, we sure are, thinking that Bill is just talking about going. And what happens is that after I tell you, he says at the beginning, what I said in Washington, I will explain to you more in detail what happened there and explain to you why Bill's presence most likely had a more lasting effect than my words. And so at the end of the book, he talks about Bill's presence. He gets up to speak, and Bill had more in mind when he said we're doing it together. When he began to speak about the temptation, uh, Bill stands behind him, sorry, um, at that moment, I saw, when the, Henry begins to speak, Bill left his seat, walked up to the podium, planted himself right behind me. It was clear that he had much more concrete idea of the meaning of do it together than I. Each time I finished reading a page, he took it and put it away and put it upside down on a small table close by. 
I felt very much at ease with this and started to feel Bell's presence as a support. But as Henry tells stories about things he's talked about with the community, Bill interrupts at one point and says, I've heard that before. And what Henry says is that Bill is sharing in this moment, that he's inviting him into the community that Henry's a power of in a new way. And after he finishes reading, Bill says, Henry, can I say something now? And he doesn't know how he's going to handle this, but he invites um, Bill to share his words. And, and Bill says, last time when Henry went to Boston, he took John Smetzler with him. This time he wanted me to come with him to Washington. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you very much. And that was it. Everyone stood up and gave a warm applause. He asked, Henry, how did you like my speech? Very much. And Bill was delighted, and he's greeted, and they have this great time, and it's a wonderful trip. And then at the last night, Bill looked at me attentively, and he said, uh, we did it together, didn't we? And then I realized the full truth of Jesus' words. In the past, I had always given lectures, sermons, addresses, and speeches by myself. Often I had wondered how much what I had said would be remembered. Now it dawned on me that most likely much of what I said would not be remembered long, but that Bill and I were doing it together would not be easily forgotten. I hope and prayed that Jesus, who sent us together and had been with us all the journey, would not have become really present to the, the would. I hoped and prayed that Jesus would become really present to those gathered together in the Clarendon Hotel in Crystal City. As we landed, I said to Bill, thanks for coming. It was a wonderful trip. And we did. We did it together in Jesus' name. And I really meant it. To welcome children, to live in that place, to embrace downward mobility, to have solidarity and live in friendship in ways that are creatively maladjusted to the world. Um, we can't all be Henry Nouwen, um, but we can listen to this instruction and find our ways to be salted as well. Let us pray. God, you have instructed us through your son, Jesus, and what it means to walk the path with you. While we might be tempted to argue among ourselves, who is the greatest? Who gets to speak? Who has the most to say in this situation? You instruct us towards children. You instruct us to those at the bottom. You instruct us to be servants. God, it is not easy for us to embrace the path in which you embrace on the way to the cross. But in this Lenten season, in this time of, of a spring cleaning for our souls, in this time of walking that path, may we be further drawn into the mystery of your incarnation with us and your descent and the way you walk that path be drawn into pondering the mysteries of the cross, the darkest part of our existence displayed before us as you give your life as a ransom for many. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.